This is Art Unbound, a joint production of Portland Art Museum and The Numbers FM. I'm Intisar Bioto, the guest curator for the exhibition Black Artists of Oregon on view September the 9th, 2023 through March 17, 2024. As an artist, my work has been grounded in research on the presence and persistence of Black artists in our region, and this podcast series focuses on these intergenerational voices. My name is Intisara Bioto. This is the Black Artists of Oregon podcast series at the Portland Art Museum. Uh, We have a very special guest here today. Uh, Would you mind telling us your name, uh, where you're from originally, and how long you've been here in Portland? My name is Richard Brown. I'm originally from Harlem, New York, and I've been here 43 years. Thank you. Uh, Well, I'm excited to have you here. You're like, there's so many artists, idols here. You're one of my idols as an artist here, as a photographer. Um, And yeah, we're just here to talk about you today and your journey as an artist, your journey here in Portland. Um, But yeah, maybe could we start out? I always start out early. When did you first feel that you were an artist? Well, I always thought I was an artist, even as a youngster. Um, I remember in the sixth grade, we were getting ready for Christmas, and they were hanging these masks of Santa Claus, and they were tracing them. Yeah, I said, well, I'm an artist. Artists don't trace. So I did mine free-handed. And the teacher looked at it, and she was not very happy. And they um, put the cotton for the mustache and the beard and the eyebrows on there, and I think the, the cotton covered one eye because she put them exactly where they were supposed to go if I had followed her instructions. So that was kind of demoralizing because, you know, you put your name on something and then it's not what you thought it was. And um, my mother was an artist, so I started drawing very young and um, always considered art to be something I like to do. And I um, went to art school in New York and majored in advertising and about two years, I, you had to take a minor art subject. So I chose photography. And we developed our own film. So that was a process that was foreign to me, but magic. You know, um, you'd get a pic, you'd get a take a picture, you'd get a negative, a film, and you stick it in this stuff. And all of a sudden, this thing is coming out of it. And then you make a picture. And, you know, it's just like walking through history, you know. Because somebody did all of this stuff that made that possible. And um, I just became serious about photography and and art. And um, the school I went to... At some point in the school, for the summer, they sent you out to work in the area that you wanted to work in, apprenticeship type thing. 
And um, there was another brother in the class that was a photographer. So we were both sent to the same place. And he was a photographer. I was a wannabe, right? And neither one of us got the job. And the realization that my mother always talked about, there were not a lot of black folks making money in the arts. She would always tell me that. And she was an artist. And um, she would always talk about E. Sims Campbell. He was an uh, uh, illustrator for um, Saturday Evening Post, a lot of the movies. He did girly magazines. And I'd never heard of him. I didn't know who she was talking about, but she'd always tell me that. So as an adult, I found a book about E. Sims Campbell. I call it, I see who he is now, right? And, um, but that was crushing that um, David didn't get a job, although he went on to do great things. And I became disillusioned with the idea of being able or having somebody else responsible for whether I could do that or not. Hmm. And I started screwing up in school and... Um, on my 17th birthday, which was on a weekend, I had decided I wasn't going back to school when I left that Friday. And by the end of the following week, I was on an airplane going to Lackland Air Force Base and felt that if I was in the service, you know, they, they, would, they had the slogan, join the Air Force, get your GED, and see the world. And I used to love airplanes. I used to build models. So that was right up my alley. And when I went down there, they had this Latin guy with all of these medals on his chest. And I just put my, my head on, in, on his shoulders. And that was me. And um, I joined the Air Force with the intention of staying 20 years, saving my money and buying equipment so that at the end of 20 years, I could get out and hang out my own shingle. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't have to go to anybody to um, tell me I'm a photographer. Mm. And in 1976, I retired, um, moved to Oregon. I was, I was stationed in Washington, and I moved to Oregon. And um, you know, many people ask, well, you're from New York and you stay in Oregon? And my response is, if I had gone to New York, I would not be able to live off my retirement. Hmm. I would have had to find a job. And that went against everything I spent the last 20 years doing. So I stayed here and realized that, man, it's rough being out here by yourself and making your own uh, life, making your own day. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I got a job. <clears throat> And I worked for the Department of Agriculture for about four years. I called my dad and um, told him I had a job at the Department of Agriculture. He said, what in the hell are you going to teach us a, a farmer? You, know, you think, you think um, string beans come in a can at the grocery store? You know, so we had a laugh about that. And um, I worked because I was afraid not to be in a structured situation. And at the end of four years, I'd realized that there wasn't nothing to it. And I quit the job after some stuff and um, haven't looked back. Hmm. Haven't worked 
for 40 years and love it. I think everybody should do it instead of living, working until you're 90 years old and dying when you're 91. So. Wow. Well, I want to double back because um, I didn't ask you this. How do you, dis- and you alluded to it in, in, in the things you said, but how do you describe yourself as a, as a person, as an artist? Like, what is it that, what's your things? I don't describe myself as an artist. I describe myself as someone who is retired. Okay. <laughs> that, that sounds a lot better. I hear that. To be 37 years old mm-hmm. and be retired. Yeah. Right. So I talk about being retired because that's what I, you know, I'm so committed. To, I was so committed to it and I feel so strongly about it. And it angers me that people work until they're, they're sometimes forced out of the job or they retire and then they go back to work. Hmm. You know, and when I was in the service, one of the things that I started doing was real morbid. I'd look at the, in the Air Force Times, they had a section, the obituaries. And everybody that had died in the, in the time between the papers coming out were listed. And I said, let me see how long. I, when, when I went in the service in 1956, a black man from, a black man, Life expectancy was 56 years. You, a black man could depend on living till he was 56 years old. Mm-hmm. So I looked in the, at the obituaries, and they're lit, there's a section for enlisted and a section for um, officers. And the enlisted men lived from like two or three years, maybe the 15. And there were some that probably lived more, but not very many. But the officers lived a long time after they retired. So I said, well, I'm going to have to do some research here, find out why they live so long. And I realized that all of that running the street and drinking and all that stuff mm-hmm. kills you. Mm. Kills you. So I changed my lifestyle. You know, I was, you know, I played uh, basketball. Um, I thought I was a track person. Mm-hmm. Played tennis. You know, I didn't. You know, I was active. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that I needed something to replace all the negative things that were that would have me living until I was fifty six. You know, so um, I changed my lifestyle, and I don't know that I lived healthy, mm-hmm. but I didn't. Um, continue to do the things that I knew that I felt caused other people who had been in the service to die young. And um, I just went through life doing and enjoying myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I enjoyed my time in the service and um, I was good at what I did and I didn't let things beat me up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, um, uh, you know, I took care of myself mentally also. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, at the time I didn't realize it. But in retrospect, you know, I was doing the things that um, I would tell somebody I thought about committing suicide to do. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, 
And again, at the end of 20 years, I felt like I'd just gotten into service. And now I'm on a new journey, another journey. So, Yeah, wow. Well, coming from, you know, coming from someone who was born and raised in Harlem and then you're in, you know, and of course, like you're in the service and then you're you're in Portland and Oregon. Um, what was it like for you coming from those places here and how did you build community and what role did your art like play in you kind of like kind of like learning about this place? Mm. Um, you know, I I have been to places that my initial feel of the place was worse than Portland. So I've been to places that were not as um, that was more than uh, that was less than Portland was at first glance, and I just figured out. You know, I'd met people in the service who they they're in the service and they hate someplace. I was I was in in Germany with a youngster that hated Germany. He hated Germans, and every chance he got, he would when he got enough leave. You take a vacation and go back to the United States. Come back to the United States. Made zero sense to me. You're going to be there for two years. You're not going to be able to go back home very often in that two years. So um, he, um, he liked to ski. And I don't remember whether he worked for me or not. I think I was an inspector at the time, so... He worked in the area that I had to inspect. But he, um, he liked to ski. And in Germany, they used um, a lot of military people to run the ski resorts. And um, I told him, you know, I found out what you had to do to become a, to go. And um, presented that to him. And he went and Went skiing for like two months, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Came back. Didn't like Germans any less, or Germany any less. But he wasn't as dogged about saving his leave and going home. You know, when I came here, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but I'd met a few people, and I got involved with the Black Educational Center. That, I think that was one of the first things I did. Black Educational Center was a um, a black private school, and um, then kind of got involved in the issues mm -hmm. around education, around the police. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we had had a murder, uh, murder, a killing of a um, a guy that had been in the military, um, and you know, we just there were just so many things that people were working on to change, that um, the photography kind of took a back seat. Mm -hmm. I think I was at a function taking pictures, and Catherine Bogle, Miss Bogle, asked me if I'd take a picture for a story she was doing. And um, she did that. The picture was in the Observer. And she asked me if I would be willing to take pictures for her stories. And then I kind of became the photographer for the Portland Observer. Um, 
the sad part about it was it was difficult to, it wasn't the kind of job where I was going to make any money at it because they, they paid me $5 for a picture, right? And for a picture, you're not going to give them a lot of choices. Mm -hmm. You're not going to do the things, the record keeping that makes um, your, your work viable, mm -hmm. you know. You take the picture, you put the negatives here, you put the old prints here, and you give them their print, and you get your $5. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you buy another roll of film. Because mm -hmm. you're not going to do much with $5. And they would only let me use one picture. Yeah, wow. So, um, but I got to know a lot of people. I got to go to a lot of events and do things that I would not have done had it not been for that. So I treasure that. Mm -hmm. And um, I always feel like, um, you know, a lot of times people want to do things, but they want to do it from running the company. You know, you start at the bottom. And I think that's the history of um, most people my age. You know, you didn't start at the bottom. Even, even people whose families had the resources that allowed you to start at the top. Mm -hmm. You started at the bottom and worked your way up to the top. You know, for for us that don't have that golden spoon, we start at the bottom, we stay at the bottom, and we get good at what we do. Um, and I think that's lost on a lot of people these days, um, uh, like photography. You know, all you need is a cell phone, and you're a photographer now. Mm -hmm. And that's not. Um, I want to say that I'm not saying it in a negative way, but I am, you know, because I think that the folks who now call themselves photographers may not know the history of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important, you know. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I think that's real important. That uh, And, and the, uh, you know, the good thing about it is, for me at least, that because, you know, I'm walking through this life doing this, other people see me doing it. And they have an opportunity to say, mimic my life mm -hmm. and how I do this stuff. Um, they get the chance to talk to somebody who's doing something they may do. And, you know, I'm accessible. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think I'm so good that um, I can't talk to people. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of times, you know, you don't get that from folks. Yeah. yeah. What comes to mind, and I know we're talking about your life, and it's not all, well, it seems linear, but everything influences everything. That kind of makes me think about, I know in other conversations, I asked, I've asked you the different artists that you, that you may have seen in your youth. I know you mm -hmm. talked about your mom and, and her artwork, um, and I, I think I have a question about her again later, but... Uh, could you tell us some more about the other artists who who you may have seen when you were growing up and a child in Harlem? Well, there was there was a guy that was um, two grades hiding what than I was. I think uh, William Reddick. I think I think that was his name. He was artist, good artist, good artist. You know, um, but you know, Roy DeCarver was a family friend. I didn't know him, you know, but mm -hmm. my mom um, knew him. And later on in my life, 
um, we became acquainted. Langston Hughes lived two blocks mm -hmm. from me. Um, we had a guy that lived in, in the building I lived in that I don't know what he did, but he was regal. He wore a tam, and sometimes he had a walking stick. And when he talked, you know, you couldn't tell where the sound, the sound was coming from his body. You know, really refined. And I always thought that he must have been an opera singer. Okay. Hmm. You know, he just carried himself and a real fine mustache. Uh, just a stellar person. You know, um, I want to be just like him when I grow mm -hmm. up. Don't have a clue of what he did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, you know, they were not, you know, it wasn't the artists that you knew a lot about. Um, Ray Robinson, the boxer. Okay. Mm -hmm. Owned the whole block, about four blocks from where I lived. Mm -hmm. Jackie Robinson had a, either a clothing store or a restaurant. Mm -hmm close by. Joe Lewis had, if if Jackie Robinson had the restaurant, Joe Lewis had the clothing store. Mm -hmm. You know, it was one of the two. So you'd see these guys all the time. The Apollo Theater was not very far from home. So you'd see all of these folks all of the time, mm -hmm. you know, and they were just Mr. or Mrs. Mm -hmm. You know, um, they didn't, or I never saw them being rushed by the mobs. You know, they could mm -hmm. walk down the street mm -hmm. and people might acknowledge them or might not. You know, but they, they got to walk down the street. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a, a, I think she was a model for Ebony that lived um, a couple blocks from where I lived. So we had all of these folks who were just um, stand-up people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, what, whatever it was they did, you know, you knew that um, it didn't just happen to them. Work went into it. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the thing that I most admired about growing up in that time. Um, we had a guy who uh, is my brother's godfather, and he was in World War I. And we lived on Fifth Avenue for a time. And, you know, you always hear that... Uh, it was Easter Bonnie or some song about Easter walking up and down Fifth Avenue. Well, people used to do that on Sundays. They'd walk up and down Fifth Avenue, and we'd sit in the window and watch them walking up and down. Mm. And this guy who was in the war had um, lost a leg, but he was sharp. Mm. He and his wife were sharp. And he had this walk, you know, the... Um, the um, the leg that they had made for him wasn't very sophisticated. So when he walked, he kind of threw his hip mm -hmm. to make that gait. Hmm. And we grew up thinking that was the coolest walk in the world. And we kind of walked, <laughs> you know, had our little yeah. swagger going. Wow. And, um, but he was just a regular guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd go up to his house and the leg would be in the corner, and he'd be in his chair looking out the window mm -hmm. with the parrot over here mm -hmm. and the dog over here. You know, so um, just great environment to be in. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I don't remember anything about being poor. You know, um, I don't think that uh, 
don't think we wanted for anything that we needed. Mm-hmm. You know, we may have wanted for things that we didn't have, you know, and, um, but uh, it was a, a rich environment to grow up in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, there was prejudice, there was racism, but, but kind of when, you, when you're small, even today, you don't pay much attention to that. Mm. And sometimes, sometimes things may happen that make you think about it. When I was in the sixth grade, I remember we were talking about slavery. And every time we had two women, two young girls in the class that were very fair. I don't remember whether one of their parents were white or not. Three, three girls. But every time we talked about slavery, it was like everybody looked at them. You know, and it wasn't, you know, just, and, and we didn't even realize it. The teacher pointed it out. Hmm. You know, um, and I don't know what it, I don't even know what it meant hmm. that we looked at them, you know, because, you know, they were our friends. Um, you know, I remember Emmett Till being killed, but, um, and I, I was in high school, and when the, um, the women, the girls in the class but took up a collection, you know, so we gave our quarters, our 50 cent pieces to send to the uh, Till family. Um, I think the first book I tried to read was um, the book about the uh, Scottsboro Boys. Um, that was one of the books that was on the table in, in our house that I remember. Mm. You know. So, you know, those things went on, you know, um the school we went, the elementary school was right down the street from where we lived, and there were three black teachers in the school. And I always thought we got a great education. Um my fifth grade teacher was probably one of the best teachers I had. He was, he was uh, Jewish. And one summer, he didn't come back after school. And it turns out that he was one of the teachers that got pressured into retiring by um, Joseph McCarthy. You know, so, but, you know, again, I didn't know what that meant until later on in my life. The fact that... Um, the neighborhood wasn't really integrated, didn't mean anything because, you know, as a youngster, you just want to be friends with folks. Mm-hmm. We had a, a, a white couple that owned a house among all the apartment houses. There was this white couple that the only time you ever saw them is when they were leaving their garage door would open and they'd drive out and they'd go. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we knew who they were. There was no coexistence mm, between mm. them and us. Um, all of this, you know, most of the stores were run by uh, people who didn't live in the neighborhood. We had one uh, luncheonette that was run by black folks. Mm-hmm. But most of the most of the shops were run by white folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I would love to ask you some more. I mean, I know I've talked to you a lot, so mm-hmm. I, I know things, and you know. Uh, but I would love to ask you some about 
you know, you came here in the late. Oh, I didn't. Well, I know, but they don't know. Well, what year were you born and how old are you now? I was born in 1939 okay. and I'm 84. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. Um, and lived past. And one of the things I found out, my dad's from South Carolina. When he left New, when he left South Carolina, he jumped the trains to New York. When he got to New York, he increased his life expectancy by one year, just coming from South Carolina, Charleston, mm. South Carolina, mm. to Harlem. And uh, you know, you know, one one of my ambitions is to break the government, mm. collecting my retirement. That you know, that's that's my. I'm going to collect it until they don't have no more money. Yeah, so um, that that's my plan. I hear that. That's well, yeah. Yeah, well, you, you told me. I remember you telling me about how you get, how you get like a physical every year. Every year. Yeah. Every year. Um, that was one of the things that um, I learned from the, from the service. You know, you don't wait until... You stand up and you walk away and your leg stays. You go to the doctor before that happens. Right. And um, I think in the early years in the Air Force, annually you got a um, physical. I don't remember in later years, but I remember um, that there were physicals. I didn't know how frequently they were. But when I retired, my, my doctor told me that I should get a, a physical every year and make sure that you get a prostate exam at the frequency that they say. And um, I learned a lot about prostate and prostate cancer well, my last few years in the service. And that it, there is a period when it doesn't have to be a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And when I got out of the service at 37, I think the they wanted you to go seven years between examinations. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Reynolds, black doctor here, was my doctor. And I said, every year mm-hmm. I want a prostate exam. Mm-hmm. And there was a friend of mine here who, um, a community guy, who had prostate cancer. And I think he eventually died of it. But I don't know why this was in the newspaper, but it was in the newspaper. And he had, his numbers were astronomical numbers. You know, high numbers. The higher, the worse it is for you. And um, one of the writers was talking about a PSA, say um, a blood test. That you can take. I called Dr. Reynolds. I said, Dr. Reynolds, am I getting this PSA? He said, Don't worry about it, Richard. You're getting the um, digital exam and the PSA. And um, I guess I don't remember what year it was. It was around the time of the um, 9 11. It was determined that I had um, prostate cancer. And I was getting the examination every year. So that was the first year that it came up. And um, 
usually, and I counsel people about this all the time, you get an opportunity to start treatment, either radiation or surgery, or you wait and see. Because prostate cancer is a long, a slow-growing cancer. And for me, there was no choice. We're going to get it fixed. Uh And I I went into the, they set up an interview for you to talk to a a, um, radiation, radiologist and a surgeon. And the surgeon was talking to me. He never looked up from what he was doing. And I didn't know anybody that had surgery that it was an easy process for mm-hmm. them. So I opted for radiation. And I would go in for my radiation treatment, and it would take longer for me to prepare for it than the treatment. And it was like I would do it during a lunch period or something. And um, never had any issues, any discomfort, anything, and um, finished it without stopping anything else I did. The stop was to go to the hospital, get the treatment, and then pick up where you left off. Mm -hmm. And I did that and have not had any problems since at least 9-11. Okay, wow. To today. And I still get my physical every year. And if anything is wrong, we're going to work on it. Yeah. You know, um, you know um, one of the things that I do is uh, men and women on parole and probation. And the, the brothers, when they come out, the first thing I tell them, get a physical. Hmm. And they always tell me, well, I got one before I got out. And I said, the only reason you got that one is because they don't want you to get out and then find out that you got a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, so get the treatment. And, um, I mean, you know, again, for me, that's taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's got a lot to do with my longevity. Mm-hmm. You know, I have zero problems. Mm-hmm. Zero problems. So yeah. I don't, um, I, I use myself as an example. I could have done all of these things differently. Mm-hmm. And I did them the way that was beneficial to me. Yeah. You know, not that um, uh, my manhood is challenged if I go to get uh, prostate cancer every year. You must like somebody, you know, sticking their finger in you. I said, look, look. But when I, when I called the guy who had these high numbers and told him, um, tried to get him to tell me what to do, what, what he did, and he said, well, you know, once you get get it working and can't have no sex. And I, my, my feelings were, well, I can deal with life with no sex. But no sex and no life, what's the big deal? You know, so um, again, those are, he was a good example for me. He died. So mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't going to do what he did. Yeah, wow. So. Well, I think what I'm hearing for, I mean, uh, I think there's something there about artists taking care of themselves and having access to taking care of mm-hmm. themselves. You know, you were able to 
start young, you know, mm-hmm. and then keep a certain trajectory. And I mean, uh, I, I, I like I talk to people and they they can't believe you. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, he's he's in his mid 80s. It's mm-hmm. really something. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm beginning to realize it. You know, um, it was never a big deal to me mm-hmm. until um, I'm asked. Mm-hmm. And then I respond to the people who ask, mm-hmm. the shout. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, somebody, I was in a, a store and somebody dropped something. And I just went down and picked it up. And somebody said, man, you sure got down there pretty quick and up again to be so uh, old. You know, so, you know, I am... You know, I do what I have. I do what I need to do to, mm-hmm. to stay healthy. Yeah, and I want other people to have the same opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, life is too short, and you know, people talk about dying, but I don't hear nobody rushing to get there. Hmm. And nobody's come back to said it was a good time. So yeah, I have to live it out there. I hear that. Uh, well, gosh, well, I. I'm interested in um, talking a little bit about, um, you know, I I came here in 2010, and so I've been here 13 years. But you know, obviously, that's not you know, there's so there's a lot more history here than what I I have experienced, mm-hmm. and so I've been able to learn about this place through the time I've been here, but also through just conversations with mm-hmm. people and people like you. And um, I learned about um, the black artist groups that were here in the 80s through Thomas Unthink. Mm-hmm. And he shared uh, some documents with me that he had from those times of the, I believe, the members gallery mm-hmm. that then turned into Black Artists Guild, and um, which was exciting for mm-hmm. me because I feel like the story there's so much places have stories, the mm-hmm. big stories that get told all the time. And then the stories that, that we wouldn't associate with right. this place. And for me, when I found out that there were these black artist groups here and these black artists who were here and or like organizing shows mm-hmm. and doing things, I thought that was so extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And I just want everybody to know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, could you tell me a little bit about that and some of the artists you met and even, um, Catherine, mm-hmm. uh, like, tell me about about Catherine, like Bogle, mm-hmm. how you met her, and like, what was her role in in those arts groups? Mm-hmm. Or yeah, well, she was um get uh, get to her first. She was a um in the service groups, the links, you know that kind of stuff, and she was in that class of folks, people. And and she did those kind of things, but she also was a um, a fighter for rights. You know, I think that um, she tried to get some jobs here and couldn't get them. And I you know I don't remember all the stories. You know, one of the things that um, that I find about a lot of the older folks here, they don't really like to talk about it. You know, so I, you know I may read something that tells me more about her than she told me about her. Although she told me a lot of the history, not necessarily her history, but a lot of the history about the folks here. Mm -hmm. And um, I think because we spent so much time together, I was probably privy to more of it than other people Mm -hmm. may have had. 
because we could start on one thing and end up doing something else. Uh, talking about other things, you know, uh, one she found a a um, a nun from I think Salem, but in the valley somewhere, whose last name was Bogle. So she invited her to her house and invited me to come over there also. And they talked about it. You know, neither one of them could make any connection between the two. But it was interesting sitting on the wall watching mm -hmm. and looking at the, uh, listening to this conversation. And it, it again gave me some interest in finding out about who I am mm -hmm. and encouraging people to find out who they are. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess, you know, um, we get so busy that the important things we kind of push to the side. And, and Ms. Bogle wouldn't let that happen. You know, if there was, um, if she was doing a story, you know, she always tied the history into it. So I, I, you know, I got a lot from her. And she was the, um, she was instrumental in starting the artist group. Mm -hmm. You know, most artists have um, patrons. And uh, she and the Lynx were that for us. Uh, it, it, it didn't last very long. But, you know, we used to meet every Sunday. And it was it was just great getting together. Well, maybe it wasn't every say often, mm -hmm. but it was just great getting together with all of these people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who have this one thing in common, you know. And um, I think we all gain from it, mm -hmm. you know. At least the friendship, at least the uh, knowing each other, mm -hmm. you know. You can. There was one guy that was a sculptor, and I can't think of his name. But Miss Bogle had found him. Okay. And he did work in this lost wax um, technique. Mm. And it's expensive. So he had only had one piece. You know, again, you know, I think that's one of the things that artists everywhere suffer from, especially black artists. And it's hard to overcome it. For most of us, we're not able to do just the work. We've got to have a job. You know, we've got these priorities that are more than allowing us to spend our waking hours behind the camera with a paintbrush in our hand, you know, doing those kind of things. And, um, except for February, then we become the soup of the day or the month. And um, I guess that was one of the things that, uh, that I would not participate in. And it didn't matter where, who was doing it. Um, I'm an artist every day, 365. And if you value my work, then February won't be the only time that you, you want me to show my work. And one of the things that three of us did, there was um, uh, Robert Rob, Robinson and P.C. Perry. There were three of us anyway. Uh, we would 
make arrangements with churches that after the service in their basements or somewhere, there will be a, a photography exhibit up. And we would do this every week. It, it would take longer to take it up and take it down than it took the people to look at it. But we were letting people in the community know mm-hmm. that you've got folks in this community that do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we always felt good about it. There was never a time when we felt, man, this is too much work. You know, and Dr. Reynolds had a, um, his office was down by Emmanuel, and he let us use his waiting room as a gallery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had it there for a week, and we went to pick it up. He said, oh. If you don't have any place to put it, you can leave it here because the people like to see it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was, for me, one of the early times in my life as an artist that I felt valued. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think um, the other two guys felt the same way because, you know, none of us had pictures to show anywhere. Mm. And, you know... Um, even though I was retired, you know, um, taking pictures wasn't a priority. I did weddings and, and uh, school pictures and senior pictures and the newspaper. And I enjoyed doing it, but it just didn't seem like it was a challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I went to the Democratic Convention when Jesse Jackson was running and Got to take a lot of pictures there, but there was no place to use them because the observer desk needed one picture, you know. So, you know, uh, I did that. Went to be at, um, Nicaragua, mm-hmm. and I think Nicaragua was um, one of the things that made me think about how value, how how much value there was into thematic shows, thematic exhibits, mm-hmm. and I think. You know, I started doing bodies of work that meant something, that had, that had a meaning for me mm-hmm. and I thought for other folks. I think the first one I did was the, the older, the mature citizens uh, exhibit. And um, it was just great sitting there and listening to some of them stories from the ones that wanted to tell them. Some of them didn't want to tell them, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to happen was that the family members would write a short um, piece on that person. Well, that never happened. Um, so we ended up just having the exhibit. And what I did was I got some young people to kind of be waiters, you know, give the older people their tea and cookies. And that was great. My intention was to kind of encourage that conversation. And that was a dismal failure. The youngsters would bring the cookies and the tea over, and the older people would take them, and they'd take off back to the sidelines, you know. And, um, but it was, it was fun. You know, the older people loved it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was one of the early times when I realized that, you know, we've got these folks here and nobody asked them anything. They don't get to talk about anything, you know. 
and I was on the board at the House of Amosia. It was a um, residential facility for youngsters that are involved with gangs. And um, once a week, we would have an older person from one of the children's family come to the House of Amosia and talk to the youngsters about Mm -hmm. growing up wherever it was they grew up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was something that, you know, youngsters couldn't believe because that was not the life that they lived, Mm. you know. So a lot of them got to um, hear about it, then I made them do their own family trees. They enjoyed it, but it wasn't anything that became part of who they were for the most part. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I find that in the older people too. So... um, um, the Members Gallery and the Artists Guild um, were uh, groups that I think Ms. Bogum may have arranged all of the exhibits we had. And it was just, you know, it reminded me of what I think that artists did in, the, in Greenwich Village when I was growing up. You know, um, you, you hear about the stories but it's, ah, that doesn't really happen. And then you get with these guys and women, and they are so much fun. You know, they're so committed to their work, even though they got a job that they have to go through mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that they don't have the time to do the work. There were a couple artists that, um, Al Goldsby is a good example. He and, and Charlotte, that's all they did was their work, mm-hmm. you know, but, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know how they lived. You know, I know Al Goldsby, his work uh, had a lot of value. So he was not as um, concerned, maybe, about the other stuff. You know, he had a studio. I've never known him not to have a studio. Hmm. And, you know, that's rent you had to pay for it. So you got to be doing some work. And, um, uh, and Charlotte, she, did, she, she was prolific in her work as an artist. And um, she would travel around the country with, art, with work from artists trying to get their work in venues away from the city. And I don't know that, I don't ever remember um, her being successful at it. Um, she did, you know, anytime um, there was a show, she had new work for it. So she was always working. Um, and there, there, were a few, there were a few artists that were here. You know, I think at the time that the um, Albina Art Center was going on, there may have been that kind of relationship with the community mm-hmm. and the artist. Um, I don't, I don't, there are artist communities here, but I think they're kind of segregated by age. You mm. don't see any young folks interacting with the old folks or vice versa. Um, and, I, and I think that's important. I think that's important. Because if you don't have that information coming to you about this work, mm-hmm. you don't get a chance to improve. Mm-hmm. And then you become cynical about what you're doing. And then before you know it, the the paint is hard. 
the film is outdated, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. So, so I encourage folks to um, do the work. For the youngsters, uh, I just want them to be youngsters. And if we can do that under the guise of taking pictures, good. You know, the, the Urban League years ago gave me money to buy cameras to teach photography to some youngsters. Mm -hmm. And I probably had uh, 10 youngsters. And every Friday, there was, there was a um, ice cream shop um, on MLK. Every Friday, we would go in there and sit down and talk about what they were doing. You know, and, and to this day, at least the youngsters that are around that, that, I, that I run into from time to time, they talk about those times. Hmm. None of them are photographers, hmm. you know, and um, but they 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 are well-rounded people, hmm. you know. And I I think that um, they ended up getting the camera. They didn't take very many pictures, but they they had the camera. And one of the women, or one of the young girls who's a woman now, still has her camera. Hmm. You know, I, I ran into the mother of one of the girls that uh, he'd given the camera. She still has the camera. You know, and they won't give them away. You know, it's part of their, their youth. There was, uh, after we gave them the camera, there was uh, a youngster who went to Woodlawn School. And his, he lived with his grandmother. She calls me up. Mr. Brown, he won't go to school if I, won't let him take, if I don't let him take the camera. So I talked to him. He said, well, I'm not, if I can't take my camera, I'm not going. Yeah, I said, well, if, if I suggest you go, will you go? No, no. So that was the end of that conversation. I said, all right, this is what I want you to do. Take your camera to school, but don't let the camera get in the way you're learning. And don't get in a fight to protect it, because if somebody takes it, I guarantee you I'll get you another camera. And then we'll worry about the person who took it. So that afternoon, I'm concerned about it because he's the littlest guy in the group. And he's the only one that's making this issue about the camera. So we walk down to, um, I, I, I go down to the school, after school. There he is on the basketball court, playing basketball with his camera around his neck. And I said, well, he's, he's going to be okay, you know, and... Uh, yeah, to this day, I don't know where he is, but um, I enjoyed those youngsters. You know, I did the same thing at the House of Emotion. Uh, we put the dark room in there so those youngsters could do that work. I, I, you know, I think if we don't, as adults, give the youngsters something to do in art, art, you can make art out of anything they want to do. We can figure out how to make that art for them. Mm -hmm. uh, if we don't do it, it doesn't get done because they will gravitate toward the, the music, reading the dogs, um, being the Michael Jordan, those things. And a lot of things aren't realistic for them. You know, um, so for me, I always, when you tell me I want to be a basketball player, I got the routine. Who's the best team? They'll tell me who's the best player, who's the most important player. And they'll go through the whole lineup. 
And when they get to the last one who doesn't get off the bench, they're mad. Well, Mr. Brown, who is the most important person? No, I'm telling Mr. Guy that writes the checks. So if you're going to be a basketball, if you're going to be involved with basketball, own the team. Whatever you want to do, know somebody who does it because they will help you get through those problems that you might run into. So I know we talked about a little bit, but I wanted to ask you in more detail about the keepers of our stories Mm -hmm. work. And uh, why did you decide to do that work? And could you tell us about like when you made that work? And yeah. When you have to look on the, Post, I don't know, I don't remember dates, but there were there were two things that um, that were driving forces in my doing the work. Three, you know, my love for old people. But um, I remember one afternoon I was riding around. Like I don't know what I was doing riding, but I got to um, MLK and Killingsworth. That's the second. Let me tell the first story first. There was a woman here, Miss Marie Smith, and she was an activist. And she had got robbed coming out of church. And in the robbery, they assaulted her, knocked her down. This is an older woman who, from what I know, all her life here in Portland, she was trying to make things better for black folks. And she gets attacked by these youngsters. And I don't think I ever saw her again after that. And then she finally died. And that kind of pissed me off. You know, um, the second one was I was driving around and I saw this woman walking across Killingsworth older woman, but she walked so slow that when the light changed, by the time she got halfway across Killingsworth, the light was changing again, and she turned around and go back. So I don't know how many times he did that, but I decided, well, I'm going to park and walk her across the street. And when I got to her, I said, well, um, I'll just take her where she's going. So I put her in the car, and I asked her where was she going. No, I asked her where she lived, I think. And I asked her where she was going. And she said she was going home. So I said, "Um, where is home? She said, down the street. So we get in the car, and she says, it's by the church. Well, at that time, there were no churches on MLK going that way. So I went all the way to Broadway. And she never said, turn here, turn there, there's the house, nothing. So I said, well, there's a church on Mallory. So I got back to Alberta, and I went down Mallory, thinking that, oh, that must be the church. We drove right by it. She didn't say anything. So as we were driving, I know she had on a medical bracelet. Because I don't know how I was going to get rid of her, you know, when she's in the car and I got this um, taking responsibility for her. 
So I said, where'd you get that bracelet? She said, oh, my son gave it to me. So I looked, I said, is that your name? She said, yeah. So I said, okay, um, the address was on it. So the address is on one of those streets uh, over by um, um, Deacon in that area where the streets are short. They have some short streets. So I'm driving around and couldn't find the street. Then I finally found it. It was like two blocks long. So I drive up and I get out the car to open the door for her. Well, the house, the door is open. So these youngsters come running out the power. You know you're not supposed to walk, uh, be, out, be away from the house like that. I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're going to have to take some of the bass out your voice. You know, um, and these are the youngsters. And uh, I said, do you, do you know this? Yeah, that's my grandma. I said, well, um, you need to figure out another way to talk to her. But, um, yeah, I'm bringing her home. And just as she got, just as I was getting ready to leave, her son comes. And I don't know his son, but we've seen each other. And um, I tell him, I said, you know, I found your mom walking down um, MLK in Killingsworth. And he said, oh, she walked away from home. So he was glad I, you know, I picked up and brought her home. And then about a month later, I'm reading the Oregonian, little tiny article. Woman gets killed by a cab on uh, MLK. It was her. And I then decided that, you know, we've got to value our old people more than we do. You know, and uh, here's, here's two women that were negatively impacted by their grandchildren or children that were old enough to be or young enough to be their grandchildren. So I went on my crusade to photograph older people with the intention of uh, having an exhibit, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and um, that was the impetus for it. Um, hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, I've been able to see a lot of that work from, you know, um, working with mm -hmm. you to get it installed over on the corner of Killingsworth and MLK. Mm -hmm. um, and even one of those photographs, you know, just thinking about like legacy and also lineage and artistic lineage, but mm -hmm. even beyond artistic lineage, like lineage and community um, and being curious, you know, mm -hmm. and um, what we have to share with one another. Um, and I know you talked to me about uh, like one of the photographs is of an elder photographer uh, could you tell us a little bit about him mm -hmm. how you met him how mm -hmm. you made this like photograph of him mm -hmm. yeah manly baldziger mr baldziger he um was a photographer that uh did his photography and had another job 
eight-hour job, you know, uh, eight hours a day job. And, you know, I always wanted to see him or meet him, but I never ran into him anywhere. And I didn't feel comfortable just going knocking on his door because, you know, he, um, I don't know that, I, did, I didn't know whether he advertised using his house as a studio. So I didn't, you know, I didn't feel comfortable knocking on the door. And I figured, well, I'll run into him someplace. You know, he takes a lot of pictures. And um, it never happened. So I decided that uh, I'm going to use the, um, the, uh, the exhibit as a reason to knock on his door. So we went there, and the one, one of the things I've learned about, about Portland, and I think probably people in general, and older people in particular, you know, they may not get out. You know, they may not, you may not run into them in the club or the grocery store, but they keep track of people. I don't know how many of the people in those pictures and older people that I've run into that speak to me like they know me, that will give me advice about something they saw I was doing or something I said as an activist. They pay attention to you. And Mr. Baldziger was one of them. He said, well, I can't tell you anything about photography. You know, you do a good job of photography. He's been looking at my photography. You know, and there was some sorrow that um, I hesitated to knock on his door. And after we started talking about why I want, why do you want to take my picture? You know, he, there was no self-value. And I think James Vanderzee, you know, the photographer from New York, was the same thing. You know, um, I have an auntie who Vanderzee photographed her wedding. And I was asking, well, do you have any other pictures, something I could have? You know, why do you want these? I said, well, you know, James Vanderzee, a famous photographer. He wasn't nothing but a wedding photographer when these were taken. You know, Wow. You know, um, so she didn't even know that he had reached the fame, however late in his life. Um, and that's, that's the way I felt about, about Baldziger. You know, he was uh, James Vanderzee. Um, I don't know how this woman found him, but his stuff was in boxes underneath the bed, in the closet, all these places. He was in a one-room house, you know, and she was kind of responsible for his resurrection, you know. Um, um, but he didn't see any value in those things. I went to see him while I was home once. But Mr. Baltziger, um, uh, you know, I had mentioned that uh, he wouldn't know why I, wanted to, why I was so interested in seeing him. I said, well, you know, you've been doing this work for years. I just want to, well, I can't tell you anything. You, you know how to handle your camera. So we just sat there. I said, well, um, can I see some of the pictures that you may have taken? Now, you know, the wall in that photograph, in, in that photograph, is full of photographs. But the photographs have been on there so long that there's one photograph that's in a frame with a glass front. And the moisture in the basement has deteriorated the picture, right? 
and he calls that his abstract work. Mm. Right? <laughs> I said, well, do you have any other photographs? He said, you know, about a month or so ago, I had a truck back up to my house, and I just dumped all of those negatives and photographs in the truck. And I was heartbroken because if I had knocked on the door when I first thought about it, I might have been able to save that, you know. But again, he, he put no value in it, you know. Um, uh, James Van Der Zee, um, he was just the, the, the photog wedding photographer. Well, he took photographs of funerals. He took photographs of um, Marcus Garvey, you know, all of the history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and he didn't think it had any value, you know. And again, he got taken advantage of. You know, he ended up marrying the woman who discovered him. And he, um, you know, everybody wanted to see his pictures, especially those legacy pictures. And they got them and never gave them back. You know, so now all of those photographs are in the hands of something else, someone else. And they're not giving them back. You know, I know... When when I met them, they were um, a um, they were in the courts about it, mm -hmm. but I you know I don't ever want to see a photographer go through that again. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I one of the things I tried to after I um, had had met him when I came back, I went to California to a museum down there, and they were exhibiting the treasures of, treasures of ancient Nigeria. So um, when I came back from that, the curator was there, and he gave me the catalog, a copy of the catalog. So I came back here to the museum to talk to somebody in the photography department. I said, I've got these two bodies of work. The museum is on the last leg of its trip to the United States, and... Um, the curator said that it would be possible to work it in the museum here. Mm -hmm. And when I talked to um, uh, Donna Van Der Zee, she said that, um, you know, if you can get there, fine, you know, we'll do the work. I brought it over here. They weren't interested. Well, you know, we, um, we book our shows years in exam, in advance. I said, you know, I understand that, but I'll bet you if you wanted to do this, you would do it. You'd figure out how to do it. And I've not been a supporter of the museum, you know, until you came along. And um, it, it kind of angers me, you know, I, I've been looking, I look at the activity around here. I don't see no black folks out here. You know, but, you know, when I asked them about it, yeah, we're still, we are doing, doing outreach, uh, you know, I don't see it. I don't see it. When Terry Todemeyer was here, he was a photographer, and we were friends. As soon as he took over the job, he called me up. He said, let's have lunch. And he asked me, what photographer would you like to see here? I said, Roy DeCarver. He said, all right, we'll see if we can make that. I said, oh, I know him. He said, well, you talk to him and just let me know what I need to do. I called him up as soon as I got home. He said, have them talk to my gallery. We did that. And he came here to have an exhibit mm -hmm. because of Terry Tonemeyer. Because of you, Well, too. you know, mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, it don't take it don't take nothing to ask. You know, it don't take nothing to demand. Well, the questions, you know, the questions and the community, the connections, you know, mm-hmm. that we're connected to one another. You, you have, you know, as you had gone to put out, uh, you know, add some, add something to the meter. I was like, you know, you have titles coming to your head and it's like Mr. Brown stories, like <laughs> so many stories. They just open up and just windows mm-hmm. into other windows and, you know, the history and, and the connections, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I want people to know about you and your mm-hmm. connections, your stories. And, you know, in like, in my mind, you brought like Roy de Carava mm-hmm. to, to Portland and people, you know, here at the art museum. And I want people to know about the black influence here, mm-hmm. despite, yeah. despite, right. um, um, what was, what it would seem to mm-hmm. be that we were not here yeah. or, or were denied space mm-hmm. or ignore, you yeah. know, I was talking to, uh, someone who has the pieces uh, of Charles Tatum, um, uh, Patricia Soltis. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's and um, I got to talk with her last Sunday and she was telling me how after Charles Tatum died, she reached out to the museum about showing his work and somebody said it's folk art. We don't do that mm-hmm. or that, you know, and, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. but these are our masters, right. you know, and it takes us to be able to say this is valuable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that heartbreaking story about Mr. Baltiger's work, that's heartbreaking to me mm-hmm. as a black photographer and person and artist that this person who was documenting black people here since, I don't know, I think the mm-hmm. 40s, like his whole uh, uh, everything is going in the in the back of a truck. Yep. But that's not also that's not just him. You know, mm-hmm. it's because he wasn't valued. Like right. who, you know, it wasn't just on you to knock on his door. Like where was where were these institutions? Like, and and it takes us to be able to say that this is valuable. Mm-hmm. We're valuable. Yeah. Like everything we have in our homes that has not been asked, that's not in collections, mm-hmm. that nobody thought like said no when we mm-hmm. asked. They said no. Mm-hmm. Like it takes us to be able to say what this truly is. So like, I know you have a practice of, you know, you have other art, other artists work and, you know, thinking about um, archives and collections. We've talked about this, what will happen with these different materials, estate sales. And you, I know you're doing that kind of thing. And I'm, I, you know, I know this is an interview of you, but I just had to say something there mm-hmm. because, you know, um, sometimes we, it's not just that, uh, we do take on that, that larger narrative when other people aren't looking for us. And, but also we need, it's hard sometimes to talk about ourselves and say, mm-hmm. Hey, we did that to me. You brought him here. Cause who was calling his name? Um, but yeah, that's, that's my tangent. Well, well, you know, I, I, and that's what I want the response to my work to be. That you say something about it, that you all say something about it. You know, to me, it's not about anything that I did, but the fact that it made you mad because something happened, you know, um, I, I, I don't know that I'm as, in the, as much denial as uh, Mr. Baltziger or um, James Van Der Zee was. But for me, it, you know, I, I don't like to make it about my work. 
You know, I want people who are doing the work to understand that it has value. You know, I took a, um, at the restoration center, there's a young, young man over there who paints. And he painted a picture of me. And um, I gave him some money for it. And it's a picture that there are no features. You know, um, I had on my, I think I had on my hat. And, you know, the first time I saw it, I thought, well, this is kind of amateurish, you know, in, in my head. But because he did, I, I wanted to support him. I wanted him to keep doing it for whatever reason he did it. So I took it home and I hung it up in my library. And like my computer's here and it's on the wall over there. And I look at the picture and it looks just like me. No eyes, no nose, but it looks just like me. You know, and it gave me more value. I put more value on that youngster than I did when I paid him for the picture. You know, and there are youngsters out there that need that encouragement all the time. All the time. And we don't give it to them you know, enough. You know, if the basketball players, well, you know, they can have two left feet, but we'll give them all the props they need to keep going. But um, the, the artists, we kind we of minimize them. You know, so I think we lose a lot of talent that way. And then when the one or two slip by, then they have the struggle with their work that I have with mine. Well, you got, you did it. What are you going to do with it? You know, nobody wants to see this stuff. And, you know, you never know that until you um, meet somebody and show it to them. You know, I was a, um, a Smithsonian scholar, and I took my senior work back with me. And it was powerful. A woman took me to her house to show it. I said, well, you know, if you don't have it out there, nobody is going to know about it. And so we need to somehow get the work out there, you know. I try to get people to, all right, you took pictures with your cell phone. Get them off your cell phone. Put them on the wall someplace. You know, um, and, uh, you know, that could be the start of another photographer. You know, it's, it's not that this, the picture is good or bad. If you feel strongly enough about it, now don't put it up there for somebody else to pick, figure out what's the best one. But if you put it up there, if you print it, that means that you're committed to it. Mm -hmm. Hmm. You know, so you put it on the wall for everybody else's enjoyment, you know, and then it'll become your favorite. The more people look at it, it'll become your favorite. Yeah. So, wow. Well, well, thank you for sharing about that. I mean, and then you know about that elder series. Um, I think one of my last questions. You know, I know you've been here all this time. You've seen so much. I think photographers keep a lot of memory, and especially folks who are like in community. You know. Uh, and I, yeah, you like, you know, people, you, you, you know, the connections. 
um, you know, being an artist here, but not only an artist, like an activist and a a person, you know, like a a a retired person, as you said. Um, what what do you you know? I know, but we talk about black artists, but black artists are also black people in community. Like we're an extension of just black life here, and. You know, there's so much that there's so much to do. There's so much that's mm-hmm. already been done. And I think for me, like I'm wanting to recognize not just always what there is to do, but what we've already done, you know, it's so much. And sometimes we're doing so much that we don't stop to say to see one another, you know, to say that there's already been so much that's been done. I know. And this, this, this exhibition wants to, for me, wants to address that. It gives people something to look at, to be more curious and follow those paths. But speaking to the future, you know, and you spoke, you spoke, you speak about longevity and I'm so glad you're here because you have an amazing memory and you have so many powerful stories. Uh, but what do you want for a black artist here? And, you know, I know we talk about archives and, and like preservation, but what, you know, what is it that you want for black mm-hmm. artists here in Portland or Oregon? Yeah. Yeah. I want there to be a community of black artists who can be artists. You know, um, it's almost like politics and why we don't get in that, why, why we're not represented there much because most of them don't make a lot of money. And life goes on. And when you have those jobs that you're not getting paid for, something suffers. And it's going to be family, community. And I think that's what we see. We don't have we don't have a way to support artists. So for a lot of people, artists is, art is just something I do um, when I get home from work. Oh, it's nothing. It's just something I do. And then when you look at it, it's magnificent when somebody else looks at it. But we don't have any way to make that person feel like they're important. You know, their, their, um, their pictures don't their work doesn't show up regularly where people can see it. You know, when when um when you're dead and gone, it's in a box headed for goodwill. And then somebody else is gonna find it and then it'll be in the museum. But it'll be in the museum because that person found it, not because you did it. You know, you'll become an afterthought. You know, so for me, being able to support to support um, artists is important. And, and we need to do it. We need to do it. Just like we, well, you know, it, it's hard to tell people what to do with their resources. But you know you got to do something. You you know you you got to do something because your son, your daughter, your niece, your nephew might be one of those folks who hits it 
And if we don't have a way to support them, then they just become another statistic. And, and I don't know, I don't know how, what we do or how we do it. You know, I think about um, black politicians. A lot of them just struggle from day to day. And then they're politicians. You know, we never, we never think about the difficulty they have. It amazes me that people say, I'm going to be a politician. Poor people know less. You know, going to be a politician. And they do it. They do it. But what could they have done if they had support? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, would, would they have been a politician or would they have been that artist that really wanted to be? You know, um, if, if we don't support them, and that's got to be financially, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's, it is difficult. You know, when, when you talk about starving artists, at least those white starving artists know, well, if we get together, we can, we can all eat together. You know, we'll figure out a way to eat together. And, you know, I think we, we tend to get in each other's way. I think, you know, we don't want to share. It, it, it's difficult. It, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It, it is hard. You know, I um I was at a play, and I was sitting next to this youngster. He's a uh, fourth grade, I think. And I had my camera, and I don't remember whether he was sitting next to me or whether he doing the play or whether he came and sat next to me after the play or at the intermission. But he said he asked me about my camera, so I told him about the camera. I said, "Oh, you like photography, huh?" He said, yeah, I like photography. I said, do you, uh, do you take pictures? He said, yeah. I said, well, what kind of camera do you use? He said, I use my computer. Well, see, that was in my dumb days. I didn't know you could take pictures with a, com- a computer. So he got his, com- got his mom's computer, I think, it, or maybe it was his, and took a picture to show me. I said, oh, that's pretty cool. So he said, do you take pictures a lot? I said, what do you take pictures of? And I don't remember what he told me. I said, well, you know something? If you're serious about photography, I've got a camera I'm going to give you. And I used to buy these digital cameras just to give them away because they were easy for youngsters to use. So I had an old Canon there, had the book. You know, when people get rid of this stuff, it hasn't, especially when they first came out, they don't get used up. They just get used and sat aside. So I had it in the box the whole nine yards. So I said, I got a camera for you. And we introduced ourselves, told me we went to school. I said, well, I will bring the camera to your school. Told him when I'd be there. So um, I get there. I go in the office. And I said, "Um, I'm Richard Brown, and I'm looking for, and they told me his name. He had told everybody in the school that I was coming and bringing him a camera. So I gave him the camera, and my methods of teaching people photography is not necessarily what makes a good picture or how you make a good picture today. It's how you make a picture, and we figure out what will make it good. So you take a picture, and we'll talk about it. 
I said, so here's my number. I gave him one of my cards. And um, he gave me his number. And last time I saw him, I called. I'd always get the machine. And one time I called, and the mother answered the phone. I said, well, how's your son doing? Well, he's doing well. I said, well, I'm, this is Richard Brown. I gave him the camera. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, thank you very much. He really enjoys it. I said, well, you know, I had told him that uh, we could get together when he started taking some pictures. Oh, well, he doesn't have any time for that because he goes to basketball camp. Now, this is a youngster that tall. He goes to basketball camp. I said, well, basketball season almost over, so maybe if you let him know, he can go. Well, no, that's not going to work because football season. Again, you know. So I said, okay, okay. So months, maybe years later, I run into his grandfather. Now, I don't know it's his grandfather, but his grandfather is somebody I know. He said, oh, I hear you're working with so-and-so. I said, well, I don't know. I wouldn't say I'm working with him. I think that his parents are working with him vicariously to uh, become an athlete. And he said, oh, you figured that out quickly. But I'll talk to him. And I just haven't heard from him. And that happens a lot. That happens a lot. The youngsters want to do one thing, but the adults have got something else for them to do that they may or may not like. You know, he may like basketball. He may like football. But all the time that we spoke, he never mentioned either of those. So I know he likes photography. Mm -hmm. And he probably won't get to do it, you know. And he won't be a basketball player or a football player. You know, the the odds are against it. Uh, One of the youngsters that I gave the test to about becoming a a, um, a ball player, decided that, well, I'm going to play basketball, but when I retire, I'm going to be a a manager. So I took him down to the Blazers, had him meet the business manager, take a picture with him, and sitting at his desk. Two years ago, the guy got a Rhodes Scholar. He went to basketball. He went to the college to play basketball. First season, he hurt himself. Didn't play most, play most of the season. Healed. Second season, hurt himself again and gave it up. You know, so, and, and he's a Rhodes Scholar. He went and spent the time in England and, you know, he can be anything he wants, probably. Yeah. Wow. Well, gosh, it's a lot. It's so many, it's so much information. You know, I, I wish it was just, uh, you ask me a question, I give you an answer. But yeah, I guess I, um, I try that, <laughs> I, and, and you know, I'm re- I really want to do that, but, but it doesn't work. It's all right. It doesn't work. We got a lot. We did so much, and mm. and I, like I said, I hope there's so many moments for people to hear your stories. Mm. The, the the panels, the gatherings, mm. the programming, like just more people need to hear what you have to say mm. and. It's, there's no way we could get it all in a podcast. So I, there's so much abundance here. Uh, but wow. Well, I want to express my thanks to you. You truly are one of my adults here. It's amazing what you've been doing here, you know, being, you know, like an artist, but an activist, but also just somebody in the community that you can talk to and 
you know, I just, um, and also I want people to see your art, you know, also I want them to know the quality of your art. And even when you were talking, talking about the stylish people in Harlem, to me, that's you, you know, you're always stepping out, Mr. Brown, wearing Brown in the Brown car. And even when you talked about the memory of the gentleman who would come downstairs, like I also remember kind of like kind of growing up and you just see these specific adults. They just have an aura and you're just like, What's this? And it just stays. Yeah. And for me, you talked about the man with the mustache. That's you, you know. <laughs> I mean, you just came here to Portland and this is a stylish picture-taking man. Mm. So I'm excited for people to see. And also, I think what I meant to say is that that style and 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 Grace also, I feel like, also moves over to the style of your images. They're just really, um, I don't want to say classic, but they're sensitive. Mm. They're stylish, and I'm excited. Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Brown. I want I want all the people to see your work, and I want you to be not just here, but other places. I want you know, like you called like like you called Roy J. Carava's name. I hope your name is called other places, so that you so that your work is also brought, and also they can also hear your stories. Um, <laughs> well, thank you, Mr. Brown. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Portland Art Museum podcast. My name is DJ Ambush, the producer of this podcast and the executive director at 96.7 FM, The Numbers, a community-based radio station here in Portland with the focus on representing black culture and music. The Numbers FM has been a community partner in residence at the Portland Art Museum since 2020. Our next two episodes will take place on November 4th and 5th during the Black Podcast Festival. We'll hear from two important families of the arts for this region, Thelma Johnson Streets family and Bobby and Liz Fother. Black Artists of Oregon is sponsored in part by a Museums for America grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services and grants from Meyer Memorial Trust and the Terra Foundation for American Art. For more information about this exhibition, visit us online at portlandartmuseum.org. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you know when the episode is released. We appreciate that you've chosen to listen to this podcast. We would also appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review this episode. That is if you're using Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Thank you for listening.